My name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here at Restoration, and we're so glad that you're here with us uh, this evening. We're in the fifth week out of seven weeks uh, leading up to Easter Sunday, and through this season of Lent, we've been looking at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And so tonight, we're going to look at Jesus' word of forgiveness. Then next week, we're going to look at Jesus' word of victory. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus' word of salvation. And so I hope if you've not been with us for every Sunday that you've gone back and listened online or if you've been uh, with us for each of these Sundays, I hope it's been an encouraging series as you've heard Jesus speak these words from the cross and you've uh, been enriched in your faith and encouraged in all that Christ was accomplishing uh, for us as he hung on the tree and died in our place. And so if you've got your Bibles or your phones, you can go to Luke 23. 34, that's the verse we're going to be in tonight where Jesus speaks his word of forgiveness. Before I started to work on planting Restoration Church full-time, I worked for a communications management company in Greenville, North Carolina. And occasionally while I worked there, we would have staff surveys sent out and they would determine kind of how we were doing with meeting our goals and living into our mission, vision, and values. And we We'll also try to find out where we were falling short of meeting our stated goals and values. And can you guess what the main area of weakness was in our company? Any guesses? This is audience participation. Communication, communication was the we were a communications management company who helped other companies make sure they had working phone and Internet and could clearly communicate both internally and externally. And it was the one thing that we were always saying we need to do a better job of. The very thing that we managed and helped streamline for other companies was a struggle for us. We lived, breathed, and talked to others about the importance of having reliable communication providers and then having clear communication with your own company and with your clients and customers. But we had become so familiar with the idea of communication that we just assumed that we were thriving at it in our office. We just talked about it so much, we thought there's no way we're bad at this. And in much the same way, we know that the cornerstone of our faith is the forgiveness of our sins. And yet, if we're honest, we struggle the most with forgiveness in our own lives. I mean, we live, we breathe, we talk to others about the need for forgiveness and the need to extend forgiveness. But if we're honest, we're not very good at it personally. Today, as we look at Jesus' word of forgiveness from the cross, we're going to be challenged in our understanding of how we practice forgiveness, and we are going to see the completeness of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight aware that sometimes we can fall into the trap of talking so much about our faith, so much about the gospel that we forget to actually embrace it. We forget to actually orient our lives around it. We forget to actually be participants in our faith. And so as we look at Jesus' word of forgiveness tonight, would it stir in us by the Spirit's power, a desire to be more forgiving, more biblically forgiving? And would it stir in us deep affection for our Savior, Savior who purchased our full and complete forgiveness on the cross as he died in our place? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to offer a, a caveat before we start. Now, by way of a little bit of confession, writing this sermon, especially this first part, was a struggle all week. And so I realized that some of what I'm going to say in the next few minutes may 
toe a line that makes you uncomfortable or you're like, I don't really know. And so I'm working in my mind at the moment to try to streamline this so that we don't cross over. But I'm also aware because of Genesis 3 that one of the things that will happen, and it can happen on any Sunday when someone stands up to preach, is that Satan seizes on the word that is taught and then he twists it so that instead of it being a word of life, it becomes a word of death. And so I want to offer that caveat today because I am not Jesus, I'm not divine, and I have a chance to maybe mess this up, or you hear it in such a way, or I preach it in such a way that the enemy would seize on it and then use it to further enslave you to sin instead of the Word of God doing what it's intended to do, which is to convict you of sin and then free you of a love and pursuit of Jesus in your life. And so I want to offer that caveat up front. And then as we work our way through this, I hope by the, the Spirit's power, I'll be clear and that you'll leave encouraged in your faith. This is what Luke records in Luke twenty three thirty four. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he looks out over all of those who have perpetrated this act of cosmic injustice. And what is his response? Is it to call down fire from heaven like with Sodom and Gomorrah? Is it to have the earth open and swallow those responsible whole? Does he ask the Father to ensure the eternal destruction of these people who have sinned against him, the Son of God? No, what we see is Christ praying that the Father would forgive these people for their sins. Christ is living into his own teaching from Matthew 5.44 where he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And herein lies the challenge for us tonight. Will we practice forgiveness as Christ taught? And the other part of the challenge is, will we not mistake forgetfulness for forgiveness in our lives? So let's take the first one. Will we practice forgiveness as Christ taught? As we hear Christ's words in Luke 23, 34, what we have to live into is the hard truth that we aren't called to be flippant in our forgiveness of others. I'm not saying we are not to be forgiving of others. We are to forgive others. At the end of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus says, and I'm going to paraphrase, we forgive so that we don't hinder God's forgiveness of us. And so there's no idea in what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes that I'm advocating for us not forgiving. But what I am going to advocate, what I am going to challenge us with, is that we would be more biblically accurate in how we pursue forgiveness. Notice that Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 5:44, and then he models it for them on the cross, that they are to pray for their enemies. And this is where the first act of pursuing biblical forgiveness starts. Will we pray for our enemies? We often don't start with prayer for our enemies as the starting point for how we are going to pursue forgiving someone else. But this is where Christ starts, and this sets the model for us both in what he taught in Matthew 5 and then what he then says on the cross, which is him praying to the Father, him praying for those who are persecuting him. 
But if we're honest, Jesus doesn't look away from the sin that's being committed. He doesn't just say, oh, not a big deal, like I'll forgive you guys because I'm Jesus and that's what I'm supposed to do. Notice he offers up in prayer to the Father that the Father would forgive those who are sinning. And this is where being more faithful, biblical forgivers begins to gain traction in our lives. We don't look away from sin and say, oh, it's not a big deal. But we see the sin as it's happening to us. And then the first thing we do is we lift it to the Father and we ask the Father to forgive them. Because here's the truth of biblical forgiveness. Your forgiveness of someone else is always secondary to if they're forgiven by the Father. Your forgiveness of someone else is never primary in their life. Their primary need for forgiveness is to be forgiven by the God who they've sinned against at the deepest, most basic level. They may have sinned against you, but underneath the sin against you, they have sinned against God. And that is who they need forgiveness from more than anyone else in the world. And so the first way we begin to practice not flippant forgiveness, but biblical forgiveness is by praying that the Father would forgive those who are sinning. But then there are also texts in the New Testament that seem to advocate for while we forgive others in our hearts and we do not hold a grudge against them, there is a sense in which biblical forgiveness is a matter of waiting for the one who has sinned against you to become aware of their sin and then come to you confessing and repenting of their sin. And that is when you pronounce that you have forgiven them. The forgiveness has already happened. You're not withholding forgiveness until they come to you. You have already worked before God to confess your need to forgive the one who has sinned against you. And then you wait until they become convicted of their sin and they come to you and they ask for forgiveness. And then it is incumbent on us as followers of Christ to extend the forgiveness that we've already experienced towards them in our heart. If you hear this wrong, it can become a license to hold a grudge. But that is not what Christ is advocating. That's not what I'm advocating. That's not what the testimony of Scripture advocates. But it does help us understand some of Christ's teaching. Like from Luke 17, 3-4. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents... Forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus ties in all three aspects of what faithful biblical forgiveness looks like in this teaching. It starts with this, if your brother sins, rebuke him. When we are sinned against, our first move is to pray that God would forgive them. Our second move is to confront the one who has sinned against us in their sin. Not to brush it off, not to chalk it up to they're just having a bad day. We are to rebuke or confront them in their sin. And in that moment of rebuke, if they repent, we don't withhold forgiveness. We forgive them. And if they do it seven times in a day, if they do it nine times in a day, if they do it ten times in a day, we offer forgiveness. But what do we do if we're sinned against and we pray that the Father would forgive them and we rebuke them in their sin and there's no repentance? Then what are we left to do? A.W. Pink helps shed a little bit of light on this when he says, 
Here we are plainly taught that a condition must be met by the offender before we may pronounce forgiveness. Meaning, there's a condition that has to be met before we tell them that we've forgiven them. But what's underneath that is like the one before the X in algebra. The understood in this equation of forgiveness is that we've already prayed to the Father that we would be forgiving towards them in our heart. That we're not withholding forgiveness, but we're practicing forgiveness. And then they meet the condition of confessing and repenting, and we pronounce forgiveness over them. Pink continues, The one who has wronged us must first repent. That is, judge himself for his wrong and give evidence of his sorrow over it. But suppose the offender does not repent, then I am not to forgive him. Meaning, you do not look at someone, even though you've forgiven them in your heart, you cannot let the desire for comfort overcome the desire to be Christ-like in pursuing forgiveness and pronounce a flippant forgiveness towards them. It means that as you work to forgive them in your heart, if they are not repentant towards you, if they do not confess of their sin then you don't pronounce forgiveness over them even though you've already forgiven them in your heart. Because that's not being faithful. That's not being biblical forgivers. And that's not how Jesus ever forgives us. When you look back at the Old Testament, you look back at all of the laws regarding the sacrifice for sin. We not only see the separation of God from man Holiness and unholiness, righteousness and unrighteousness. But if you go back and you read the law, you see how specific and how particular God is about how he communicates his forgiveness. God is never flippant with his forgiveness, nor should we be. We want those who sin against us to have a chance to work through and own confessing and repenting of their sin we don't want to constantly give them an easy out where they never have to deal with the truth of the sins that they are committing that's not being loving that's not being wise that's not encouraging them to grow in their faith it's always giving them an out because we would just prefer ease and comfort rather than living in this tension of i've forgiven them but they've not asked for forgiveness yet what Jesus taught and what A.W. Pink is arguing for is really an elevation of forgiveness to its true costly place in our lives. It is meant to help us see grace as costly, not as cheap grace as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would later say in his writings. And so in our lives, there will be a time where we will not readily pronounce forgiveness over someone who has sinned against us unless that person comes to us humbly confessing and repenting of their sins. Again, we have already forgiven them. We've already forgiven them in our hearts. And we've taken our hurt and our pain and our confusion and our anger to God. And we've asked him to help us process through how we've been sinned against and to be in a position of living as one who has already forgiven them. But there will be times where we will not readily and flippantly say, oh, I forgive you because I'm a Christian and that's what I'm supposed to do. There are times where we will wait 
patiently for the Lord to work in someone's life until he is able by the power of his spirit to draw the poison of the sin up out of their hearts and out of their lives so that they would know the forgiveness that God offers and then they would come to be restored by hearing us say that we forgive them also and the bond of unity and the fellowship of peace would be restored. But when repentance is present and we withhold grace and forgiveness because we've not properly processed a posture of forgiveness before God for these people, then if we decide that we want to withhold grace and forgiveness when someone comes to us repenting of their sins, then we find ourselves as the ones in sin. And now we must go humbly confessing and repenting of our sin to the one who initially sinned against us. Do you see how much different this is and how we usually pursue forgiveness? Usually we just flip and say, oh, I forgive you. It's not a big deal. And all the hurt and all the pain and all the anger and all the questions all fester under the skin until the next time we're sinned against or the next time that person does something. And then it comes out of us and we realize that our heart really hasn't been conditioned by the gospel. Our heart has become a cauldron of vengeance. And we no longer move towards people the way that Christ has moved towards us, but we move towards them in the manner of the accuser. And so the call to biblical forgiveness is to first pray as the sin is happening is that we would be one who prays to the Father that the Father would forgive them for their sins because we recognize that as primary. Then we ask that the Lord would make us truly forgiving of that person even as we confront and rebuke them in their sin. And if there is a moment of heartfelt confession and repentance, we forgive them and we go on. But if there's not a willingness of the one who is sinning to own their sin and confess and repent of it, then we withhold the blessing of speaking forgiveness over their life, even though we've already forgiven them. This takes the work of the Spirit in our life. This is not something we can do in our own strength. And I think if we were honest, we would say most of our forgiveness is something that we try to leverage out of our own strength. Not only that, we also have to lean into the teaching of Jesus and fight against the lie that forgetfulness is the same as forgiveness. Any Arrested Development fans in the house? One saved person, thank you, Bree. The rest of you need to get saved and watch it. I'm kidding, I can't really say that from up here. But in the fifth season of Arrested Development, Lucille Bluth introduces a running gag. And if you're familiar with the show, they do this all the time. They introduce a thing and they carry it on for a season or a couple seasons or maybe the entirety of the show, depending on when it was introduced. But in season five, Lucille Bluth misunderstands forgive and forget. And she says the Bluths forget, but don't forgive. And if we're honest, that's our pursuit of forgiveness, right? We forget how we've been sinned against, but we never forgive the person. We forget the pain in the moment when someone slandered us or lied about us or stole from us. We forget, but we never really forgive. And here's how I can prove it to you. When someone sins against us, we get angry, hurt, and confused. We talk to other people about the sin and the sinner, justifying our anger and our desire for vengeance. Then 
We come to our senses knowing that as Christians we're not to be those who pursue vengeance. And so rather than pursuing biblical forgiveness, we drop pursuing retaliation and we simply try to forget what happened. And then this is what happens. We never deal with the sin. And later, when we see that same person who has sinned against us succeeding, advancing, or appearing to go through life unscathed or unbothered by the sins that they have committed against us, all of those feelings of hatred, distrust, anger, and vengeance come roaring up out of the depths of our heart like a volcano ready to explode. So what are we to do? We're not to forget. To forget is not biblical. To forgive is. And that means that we have to sit a lot of times in a very uncomfortable tension of not allowing people to think that what they did wasn't sinful. Let me offer a second caveat to this. Personality conflicts are not sin issues. Someone's personality grating against you is not a sin issue. We have to make sure if we're going to pursue biblical forgiveness well that we are actually pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation where actual sin has happened. So often we fail to pursue forgiveness because we overlook sin and we pursue non-sin issues as sin issues. And where the gospel is meant to bring us together, it actually is brought in and used as a wedge to drive us apart because we're not using the gospel to address sin issues. We're using the gospel to address preference issues. So you have to have that caveat in here or you'll get this one wrong too. I'll get it wrong. And where the gospel should bring healing, it will only bring strife and frustration and further conflict. A.W. Pink is really helpful here in helping us better understand how to practice costly biblical forgiveness that doesn't fall into unbiblical forgetfulness. This is what Pink says. Even though the one who has wronged me does not repent, Nevertheless, I must not harbor ill feelings against him. This is where we say you can only not harbor ill feelings towards someone who has not repented to you if you've already chosen to forgive them beforehand. The only way you'll ever not harbor ill feelings towards someone who's sinned against you and not asked for forgiveness is if you've already taken that sin and that hurt and you've confessed it before the Lord and you have put yourself in a posture of being forgiving of that person already. Otherwise, all the bitterness, all the ill will, everything will stay in your heart. There must be no hatred or malice cherished in my heart. Yet on the other hand, and this is where the whole forgetfulness thing comes in. I must not treat the offender as if he had done no wrong. That would be to condone the offense, and therefore I should fail to uphold the requirements of righteousness. And this the believer is ever to do. If one has injured me and repented not, while I cannot forgive him and treat him as though he had not offended, nevertheless, not only must I hold no malice in my heart against him, but I must also pray for him. Here is the value of Christ's perfect example. If we cannot forgive, we can pray for God to forgive him. Notice what Pink says, and this is where I think the forgetfulness comes in. 
I must not treat the offender as if he had done no wrong. That would be to condone the offense. This was the most uncomfortable question I've had to ask myself in sermon prep in a long time. How many people am I condoning in their sins? How many people am I, because of how I wrongly pursue forgiveness and treat people who have sinned against me as if they had done no wrong, how many people have I actually condoned to think that living in sin is okay? And what I come to realize working through this question is that the thing that causes me to want to be forgetful of people's sins is that I have a greater fear of man than a fear of God. I fear that you're not going to like me. I fear that you won't come back to church. I fear that you're going to take what I've said to you and go to others and twist it and say something about me that is in no way representative of what I said, and so why bother? I've offered you forgiveness before, and you've never responded with any sense of care in the world for my well-being. I fear all that could happen if I stepped out in faith and didn't allow myself to pretend that nothing had really happened. Think about all, I mean, if you just take 10 seconds and think about the deepest hurt and the deepest pain that you've experienced at the hands of someone else sinning against you, most of it has not been resolved because you have not worked through biblical forgiveness towards that person and pursuing reconciliation. You've just worked to try to forget what happened in the first place. You've condoned them in their sin and you've calcified your heart in bitterness and in anger. And all the hurt and all the promises that Jesus makes about forgiving us and giving us freedom and joy all seem distant realities because we've not pursued biblical forgiveness. And this is the challenge of Christ's words from the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Will we follow our teacher's example? Will we follow the Savior's example and exhibit true costly forgiveness in our life that's the challenge the comfort is that we see in jesus's words in luke 23 34 the triumph of redeeming love when jesus says father forgive them for they know not what they do we hear him asking the father for full and complete forgiveness for all sins committed by those who would be saved When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, there's a comma there. And so in one sense, there's the immediate prayer that Jesus is offering for those who are crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's also a sense in which once you understand that immediate context, you can bring this thing up to 30,000 feet. And you can hear in Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, him asking for forgiveness for each of us for all the sins that we are aware that we have committed. And you can hear in the, for they know not what they do, Jesus asking for forgiveness for all of the sins that we commit in ignorance every day that we are unaware of. This is the full, complete, total forgiveness that each of us needs. It's the greatest need of everyone walking the face of the earth right now that they would know that they are fully forgiven, not partially Not halfway, not some now and some later, but if they will trust in Christ, they are fully forgiven. 
for the past sins, for the present sins, for the future sins. Jesus, when he says, Father, forgive them, is not only praying for those right in front of him, but he is praying for all of us that we will be forgiven for all the ways that we know we've transgressed the law of God. And when he says, for they know not what they do, he is talking about the immediate vicinity that they don't realize that they are actually crucifying the Son of God. But he is also, in another sense, lifting us up and saying, and Father, forgive them for all the times that they're not even aware that they're transgressing your law as your kids here is complete and full forgiveness for everyone who would be saved there is no sense of any sins being overlooked no sins are getting swept under the rug and no sins are being left to us sinners to earn forgiveness for it's the triumph of redeeming love that we need to be comforted by because it is often here that the enemy the enemy introduces doubt and paralyzing fear concerning the sins we commit after we come to faith in Christ. We trust Christ for forgiveness of sins. But most of us are really unsure of what we do with the sins that just keep on happening after we've trusted Christ. For seven years, I battled understanding what to do with the sins I committed after I trusted Christ. I thought I was very close to sending my way back out of salvation. I'm sure if we're honest, most of us have felt that at one point or another, that we have somehow got very close to the end of God's forgiveness rope. And if he doesn't tie one knot on, on at the bottom, we're going to be to the end and off we go. All thoughts and assurances of eternal life washed away by our inability to stop sinning. And the enemy will seize on that in our lives and use it to grip us in a paralyzing fear that causes us to stop pursuing growth in the gospel, stop pursuing non-believers and sharing the gospel with them, and it leaves us, while connected to the vine, shriveled and dying with no hope of bearing fruit. And so we have to hear in Jesus' words the fullness and the overwhelming victory of redeeming love. And again, A.W. Pink is going to help us understand this when he says, many of God's people are unsettled and troubled upon this point. They understand that all the sins they had committed before they received Christ as their Savior have been forgiven, but oftentimes they are not clear concerning the sins that they commit after they have been born again. Many suppose it is possible for them to send away the pardon that God had bestowed upon them. They suppose that the blood of Christ dealt with their past only, and that so far as the present and the future are concerned, they have to take care of that themselves. But of what value would be a pardon that might be taken away from me at any time? Surely there can be no settled peace when my acceptance with God and my going to heaven is made to depend upon my holding on to Christ or my obedience and faithfulness. When we hear Christ say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and we see the triumph of redeeming love, it is meant to give us a settled peace and security concerning our salvation. It's only when we are assured of the triumph of redeeming love in our own lives and in the forgiveness that we've experienced in Christ that we will move towards forgiving others. If you are vacillating in doubt about the assurance of your own forgiveness, you're not moving towards anybody else in forgiveness. 
you're not going to pursue others in a forgiving manner because you're always going to be concerned with making sure your own sins are forgiven. This is where the assurance of the triumph of redeeming love feeds back into the challenge. If you're not assured of your full, complete forgiveness, your only concern will ever be that your own sins are handled. And it will keep you from ever moving towards others in pursuing biblical forgiveness one to another that displays the truth and the beauty of the gospel. This isn't just A.W. Pink's idea or my updated idea of A.W. Pink's idea, although I would never try to say that I'm as smart as Pink or could update what he said. This is also the testimony of Scripture. Over and over again in both the Old and the New Testament, God communicates clearly that we are to rest assured of our salvation because of the fullness of the forgiveness he offers his people. Psalm 32 1 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Isaiah 43, 25. I, meaning God, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How many? All of them. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The testimony of Scripture is that there is full and complete forgiveness from God to his people. And there's never sin left over for us to atone for. Our God fully and completely forgives those he saves. That's what we're banking our lives on. There is no threat or chance that we could be forgiven any less than fully. At the end of our life, there will be no sin skeleton in our closet that will come tumbling out and somehow disqualify us in that moment from the eternal life Christ has called us to. There is peace and there is assurance when we hear Christ say from the cross, Father, forgive them. He's forgiven us. Fully. Completely. I hate math, but there's no remainder here to be worked out. There's no number that just goes on and on and on and on, and then you just eventually have to give up and cut it off. Full, complete forgiveness. By God, 
through Christ for us. I'm going to close by sharing about a lady who lived out this call to biblical forgiveness. Corey Ten Boom was raised in the Netherlands, and she was a young woman when Nazi Germany began to make its way through Europe. Her family, convinced of the atrocities of Nazi Germany, began to offer their home as a hiding place for Jews who were seeping seeking to escape the Netherlands with their lives. The biblical, gospel-centered faith that her family had from being members of the Dutch Reformed Church greatly empowered them to become a safe haven for Jews as they were seeking to escape with their life. On February 28, 1944, the Gestapo raided her family's home and placed everyone under arrest. Corey and her sister Betsy were transferred to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where they remained together until Betsy's death in December of 1944. In just a few short weeks before the end of December, Corey Tim Boom would be released from Ravensbrück and would then give her life to pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness as a means to overcoming the pain, scars, and trauma of the survivors of Nazi Germany's horrors. In 1947, while speaking at a church in Munich, she recognized, huddled near the back of the room, the cruelest guard she had ever encountered while at Ravensbrück. After speaking, the guard approached Corey Tim Boom and referenced his involvement at Ravensbrück. Here's how their interaction unfolds. The guard says, you mentioned Ravensbrook, the man continued, his hand still extended. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It's been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips, too, that God has forgiven me. This is costly biblical forgiveness. This is what we talked about at the first half of the sermon. The one who has sinned against you is now asking for your lips to confess that you know that God has forgiven him, that you've forgiven him. This is what she says. I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. If there's ever been a better definition of what biblical forgiveness looks like in action, that sentence is it. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is a human display of everything we've talked about tonight. It's simple and it's horrible. It'll often feel mechanical and not even real in the moment. 
But notice what she says at the end. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And can I just offer a little speculation as to why that is the case? Because it's when we forgive those who have committed sins against us that we are closer to the Father's heart than we ever get otherwise. This is the biblical mode of love. It's the pursuit of those who sin against you to forgive them. When we practice biblical forgiveness, we get closer to the heart of the Father than in any other spiritual discipline or practice we will participate on this side of eternity. So when she offers forgiveness, she says, I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So it is that in true biblical forgiveness, we experience the love of God in ways that are deeper and more profound than through any other expression of our faith. May we be a church who encourages one another and ask the Spirit daily for the wisdom, courage, and strength to be faithful practitioners of biblical forgiveness. Let's pray.